our living on this planet does not mean that nature, the natural world is going to not survive. Our survival can't depend on the destruction of the natural world. That has to change. Welcome to EcoAlarm, the podcast where we break down the major factors affecting the environment and explore what we can do to help. I'm your host, Imani. And I'm your host, Bo. Today, we'll be talking to Mari Margot. Mari is the Executive Director at the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, an organization that works with governments, indigenous communities, and grassroots activists to protect the human right to a healthy environment and establish the rights of nature itself through laws and legislation. Mari has worked on so many interesting projects, from putting the rights of nature in Ecuador's constitution to writing the Declaration of Rights for the Moon. Today, we're super excited to get an insider scoop on some of the ongoing projects Mari's working on. Okay, so we're here with our guest Mari Margill from the uh, Center of Democratic and Environmental Rights. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, and we'd love to just have a brief introduction. Thank you for having me. It's, it's really good to join you. I work with the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, and we're based in the United States, and we do work really around the globe to advance, this is our name says, of course, democratic rights and environmental rights. And environmental rights, as we define it, includes both the human right to a healthy environment, as well as the rights of the environment itself, which is often described as rights of nature. And so we have learned through our work in different places at local level, national levels, that the the right to a democratic right or the right to self-govern, like within our community, for instance, is really critical to the ability to protect nature, to protect the environment. Too many communities find that when they're faced with some kind of threat to the natural environment, that they don't have the legal authority, the democratic capacity to protect themselves or the environment from the threat. And so democratic rights, expanding those particularly within communities facing threats has been a real concern and a real focus of our work, but it also is reaches much broader levels, particularly with work we do with tribal nations who are always struggling to expand their rights to self-govern and self-determination, which includes their right to protect the lands and the waters and the airs that they depend upon. And so democratic rights and environmental rights and rights of nature, all of that is very intricately related in our work. And we come across those issues all the time. And so it's been, it's been a journey, but we really focus on helping people to understand the system, legal systems in which they live and why they can't protect something when they think they should be able to or stop some kind of threat when they feel that they should have the power to do so. And working with people and communities and even governments to advance a broader definition of what a democratic rights really are and what environmental rights are for humans and nature through laws, through citizens initiatives, through court cases and other means that people have to make really fundamental binding changes within their legal system so that they can protect their families and their homes, their communities, and the natural world. Awesome. I mean, before we jump into kind of those real world cases of how that happened, I'd love to know your personal journey and maybe how you came to discover that the rights of nature are, I guess, a thing, because I don't, I mean, maybe it's just me, but sometimes I don't always think of it in that way. So I was wondering if you had kind of a journey to get to this point. Well, the the rights of nature actually is really new. That is the recognition of legal rights of nature within any law. It's only been since 2006 that that's actually happened anywhere in the world. So it is a very new phenomenon within law um, as a way to say it. And I fortunately came to learn about it in theory before it got into actual practice before that. But for me, it was really a journey about, I've done a lot of activism in my life environmental activism, within labor and with the unions and other areas. And I came to realize that, you know, that I, my real interest 
in life was in terms of protecting the natural world. And in my activism, before I started working within the rights of nature arena, uh, was, I guess I could say, dissatisfying in that it felt that as uh, we were always trying to fight bad things from happening, uh, which is something that people everywhere have experienced. You know, a, a new mine coming in, a new frack well, a new pipeline, GMOs, factory farms, you know, you name it. There's so many different ways that we've managed to industrialize nature um, everywhere around the world. and as an environmental activist, you spend so much time trying to stop something new that's bad from happening that it's very rare that you have an opportunity to try to advance something good. And I came, I went through a journey of you know, my own sort of learning and education to really gain a strong understanding, I hope a strong understanding of how and why this is the case. And the more I came to learn about it, the more I came to realize that we, we humans, are we just have a very cavalier attitude toward nature um you know we, we we depend on nature for our own survival and yet we treat nature you know essentially as a trash dump um and the consequences of that are you know ever more clear every single day and um, you know everything from of course the acceleration of climate change and all of the consequences of that but also species extinction rates which are far beyond natural background extinction rates, you know, thousands of times uh, worse than what would naturally occur, collapse of ecosystems, deaths of you know, coral reefs, all, you know, all sorts of indicators that we um, have treated nature so poorly, the consequences are ever more real, more apparent, screaming to us in the headlines. And as I came to really internalize that, I guess is a way to say it, you know, it raises the question of why, because we have so many environmental laws and rules and regulations on the books at the national level, state level, local level, not only in the United States, but all the countries around the world have just masses of environmental laws. And it would seem that with all those laws, we should be able to protect the environment far better than we're doing. But I came to understand that environmental laws everywhere around the world are about legally authorizing how humans use nature, how we exploit nature. Essentially, you know, it legally authorizing us to frack through aquifers, to blow the tops off of mountains, to mine coal, to, you know, use every drop of a of a river for irrigation and other water uses. To use every species, you know, every species to clean out the ocean floor of fish. You know, all of these different things that we authorize under law or in rules and regs that sit there and all they're doing is putting conditions on how humans use nature, but allowing us legally to off, to exploit it. And what that means is you have this legal phenomenon in which we're legalizing the use and exploitation of nature, but also Pairing that with a cultural or societal phenomenon, which is that because we have all these environmental rules in place, that we, you know, we, the ordinary person going about our day, can feel comfortable thinking we're protecting the environment because we have all these environmental rules. But these environmental rules are very much aimed at the use and destruction and exploitation of nature. They're generally written by the very industries that want to conduct these kinds of activities. And so it's no surprise when we wake up one day and find, you know, extreme storms and species extinction and all of these things, because all of our activities as humans in this, particularly in this industrial age have added up to a place where we are, have just treated nature so poorly and put it under the guise of being legal and authorized that we can feel good about it. Uh, but the consequences are so real, we simply can't escape them. And that's really where I came to a place where I was like, you can't just keep doing this anymore. The status quo does not work. And that means that both legally and culturally, in my mind, we need to make a really fundamental shift in humankind's relationship with the natural world. So changing not only how nature is treated in the law, but how we think about it and feel about it within ourselves, within culture, within society. I think we need those really, really fundamental shifts if we're going to reach anything close to 
you know, some kind of true sustainability or harmony with nature. And that's where I ended up where I am today. Yeah. So, um, going to more specifics, um, what are some of the most urgent environmental rights issues that people need to pay attention to right now? Well, I, I want, if I understand your question, I mean, I, I think the most are, we have any number of environmental threats that are happening everywhere around the world. Obviously, I think climate change for many are, is very much front of mind, um, because we're seeing how severe it is already and only going to getting worse if we don't get our own houses in our order, so to speak. Um, and so I think that we have innumerable threats. Climate change, obviously global, is affecting everywhere around the world. And that to me is, you know, something that I sit with every day is feeling, you know, just so such significant urgency. And so we do work with people and places and communities and, and organizations that are focused on advancing, um, you know, climate rights. That is to say, a right to a healthy envir- environment and a healthy, stable climate system. Um, for humans, but as well for um, ecosystems. For instance, in places like Nepal, where the Himalayas and Mount Everest, the tallest mountain, are, you know, the Himalayas are often talked about as the third pole um, on Earth. They have the North Pole, South Pole, and then the Himalayas as the third pole. And the Himalayas are experiencing warming faster than any other mountain range on Earth. And people there are seeing it in real time. They're facing the consequences of it. And we've been working there to advance uh, rights of the Himalayas with at state or regional parliamentary levels as well as the national parliamentary level um, to recognize that that ecosystem has a right to a healthy climate, which means that being able to hold accountable those major climate polluters you know, for both industry, corporations, um, and different governments, and different countries that are the major polluters that are, we know are having such significant impacts or contributions to climate change. I guess, how do you deal with that conflict, right? Because I feel like industry has such a hold on our current environmental laws, like you mentioned, they draft a lot of them. So, how do you guys work to combat that? And how do you convince people of the right to nature? Well, very often we work with people who have already tried to advocate for the environment. And, and that can be people in elected governmental roles, you know, or it can just be people in a community that are worried about their water quality, for instance, people in advocacy groups, NGOs. And so, very often people have already experienced what the environmental legal system has to offer. Um, that is to say, they, you know, they've tried to stop something bad from happening, find that environmental laws actually authorize that bad thing. And so they're not finding they're able to protect the environment under existing environmental laws, meaning that they've exhausted the pathways that they thought that were available to them to protect the environment. And so very often people come to the rights of nature they find it, they hear about another community that's done another country that's engaged on it, in some ways almost as a last resort, because if existing environmental laws, the existing environmental legal system does not provide a remedy or a solution to the environmental problem that you face, what do you do? So people have often come to the rights of nature to say, we understand the existing system doesn't work. We need a new system. We need to completely change how nature itself is treated under the law. We need to change how human beings govern themselves toward the natural world. And the rights of nature is a place that people are finding that place where they can put that change into binding law and policy. And of course, like anything, like anything environmental, you know, corporations, industry are always going to fight it. It doesn't matter if it's rights of nature or just something, you know, sort of more day to day. They always try to fight anything that will interfere with their ability to use, exploit nature or people or communities. Um, and so it takes, you know, pressure. It takes 
willingness among people, government officials, elected officials, to push back. It takes a willingness of people to recognize how the existing environmental laws and legal system actually works. It takes a willingness to say no more. And so it's it's not easy to do. I mean, people don't engage in things that are so you know difficult because it's easy. They do it because it's necessary. And more and more people are stepping forward to do it because things are just getting so bad. So I guess you do all of this work, right? We get to the point where we've actually been able to convince people to move forward. How successful or how do you go about implementing this and preventing corporations from just sidestepping these measures? Yeah. And remember, it's not just corporations that are sidestepping. Yeah, everyone, everyone from sidestepping. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's often just governments. Um, that it choose to ignore or override or whatever, however we might say that. So again, it's it's not as convincing us as much as people saying we need something different. Um, we need something that's tangibly different. And so there's different ways that the rights of nature, le- you know, recognizing legal rights of an ecosystem, a species, or nature on the whole, uh, and those. Legal rights include, you know, even the most basic right of nature to exist, a right to regenerate, a right to evolve, a right to be restored if nature's rights are violated. Um, and so we've worked with local communities that have passed these laws. For instance, Orange County, Florida in 2020 passed a law by a vote of the people um, to recognize that waterways within that county have legal rights. Um, we, my co-founder Thomas Lindsay and I, work with the Constituent Assembly, the Constitutional Convention in Ecuador, on their constitutional provisions to recognize the rights of nature or Pachamama within their national constitution, and that's the first country, Ecuador, to enshrine the rights of nature within a constitution. And so you have this in a constitution, you have it in national law, local laws. There's been courts in different countries like India and Bangladesh and Colombia that have declared or ruled that certain ecosystems, such as rivers, possess legal rights. So there's different ways that nature has been recognized as possessing legal rights. And once those laws or court decisions are in place, then you get to what you might think of as like the less sexy day-to-day of how do you implement and enforce this stuff um, now that it's on the books. And so, you know, one way, of course, is just as, you know, us on this, in this conversation, we have rights, you know, right to free speech, for instance. Um, and if our rights are being violated, we can enforce them against whomever is trying to interfere with our rights. Uh, or violate or infringe upon our rights, and that can mean going to court. So right now, we have several cases moving forward of the United States, for the very first time, actually, that are seeking to enforce the rights of nature. So I mentioned in Florida, in Orange County, which for folks who aren't familiar with the state, Orange County um, is where Orlando and Disney World are. And so that's where they recognize the rights of waterways within a county law back in 2020. And last year, a case was brought in court, Florida courts, to stop a proposed development that would develop um, over 1,900 acres of land for a commercial and housing development and within Orange County. And a case was brought by the waterways themselves to enforce their rights against this development, to stop the development which the state of Florida is just issued a permit to go forward. And so just very, you know, very clear terms, if I can, you have these different waterways, um, like the Cypress Branch waterway, for instance, and other streams, bringing a case to enforce their rights because the rights of the waterways will be violated if this goes forward. So this development would, for instance fill or dredge wetlands. And when you're talking about filling a wetland, what you're talking about is destroying the wetland so the wetland no longer exists. And I was looking at one of the briefing documents in this case earlier today because I thought it would be interesting to share. 
So within the rights of waterways law within Orange County, Florida, waterways have a right to exist. They have a right to flow. They have a right to be protected against pollution. And they have a right to maintain a healthy ecosystem. So they're bringing a case to enforce their rights because, as they say within their briefing documents, and I'll just quote here if I can, quote, the proposed development would end the existence of these wetlands. And so that would violate the right of the wetlands and of the waterways to exist. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than that. You know, you're getting, the state is issuing a permit to a business corporation to destroy wetlands. That's it. Black and white. The wetlands have a right to exist. And the waterways that depend upon them have a right to exist. That will be impacted by this development. And so the right to exist is, will be violated if this development is able to go forward. And similarly, um, you know, the right of these waterways to flow. If you think about a river or a stream, you know, their ability to actually perform their natural function to flow will be interfered with when you're dredging and filling, you know, 30 plus acres of streams or wetlands to build roadways and mini malls. And so these waterways are, and this is the very first time this has happened in the United States, in which a rights of nature enforcement case is being brought to court. Waterways are bringing a case on their own behalf, in their own name, to defend and enforce their rights to exist, their rights to flow, their rights not to be polluted, as is enshrined within the law within that county. And so this is the first time that this kind of case has been brought forward in the United States. Other similar cases have happened, for instance, like in places like Ecuador, where they have it in the Constitution. Um, but that's a very like, sort of tangible example of what this looks like. I am curious, though, because you're mentioning things. I'm not sure how specific that waterway works, but I know a lot of them cross kind of state boundaries or things of that nature. How does that complicate things? Because if we have a law maybe in one state that isn't carried in another state, like does that affect the right to nature? We would absolutely argue that it does. Um, and so, for instance, you know, just staying with a example of like a river. You know, that might flow from one county, you know, upstream in one county and flow downstream into another. And the downstream river, you know, as the river flows into, might flow from a, a jurisdiction that doesn't have a rights of nature law in place. In, and then it flows downstream into a jurisdiction that does have a rights of nature law in place. We believe, and it hasn't been tested in court yet, um, that if pollution occurs upstream, in the river that then of course flows downstream into a jurisdiction where the river has the right to not be polluted, for instance, that the river should be able to enforce its rights against the upstream polluter. That's something that we think is seems very obvious that should be able to take place, but thus far hasn't happened yet. Of course, foresee that it will, that those kinds of challenges. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. Those things need to be able to take place because if you're harming our river and our river has rights, we should be able to enforce those rights to stop that harm. Yeah. So I guess going into um, some of the cases you worked on, I know there's the Ecuador government um, constitution. There's the declaration of the rights of the moon. What are some of these like, what are some of the common elements, whether we're talking about a domestic case or international case or even not even on some other planet? What are some some of the underlying principles that are shared in all these cases? So there are some kind of common elements that you want to have in any rights of nature law or policy or even declaration. Essentially what any rights-based law to work. It number one has to recognize certain legal rights. So in the case of rights of nature, you know, a right to exist, a right to regenerate, a right to evolve, a right to be restored. In the case of Orange County, the right of the waterways to flow. There are basic rights that any rights of nature law you want to have have, like the right of nature to exist, the right for it to be healthy or thrive the right of it to regenerate, 
um, the right of it to be restored if harmed. So those basic rights, and many rights of nature laws have that basic set of rights, and, and, and a number of them go beyond that to recognize specific rights of a particular ecosystem, like a right to habitat, a right to fresh water for wild rice, um, that the white earth, um, band of Ojibwe recognize. So specific to that particular ecosystem or specific to a particular species, the rights that nature needs essentially to be healthy and robust and resilient. So at its core, any rights of nature law needs to recognize certain legal rights. And beyond that, you don't want those rights just to, you know, sort of be symbolic or be printed on a page and collect dust. What's important is not only does nature possess those rights, but they're actually able to exercise those rights. That is, they can use them. So that means, as we were just talking about, you know, number one, you want to be able to enforce them and defend them against threats. So against a potential violation or an ongoing violation of the right. So, you know, a river having a right not to be polluted, if pollution is being planned for that river, you, you want the river to be able to enforce its rights to protect it from that proposed pollution because its right to not be polluted would be infringed upon. So you, so nature, you know, is considered to be the rights holder, that is, possesses legal rights, needs to be able to enforce its own rights. Just like you or me, you know, it doesn't mean a whole lot if we have a right to free speech, if we're not able to enforce it when it's being threatened. So at the core of these laws, you have the legal rights that are recognized and then providing a means to enforce and defend those rights and beyond that even to implement them. And implementation means measures being taken to uphold and guarantee that the rights are being upheld. So, you know, it's one thing, so you know, again, drawing a parallel into our lives as, you know, people, and um, we have a right to vote, but we need to actually be able to exercise that right. You know, it doesn't mean a whole lot if I have a right to vote, but then there's nowhere for me to go to vote, or restrictions are put into place that limit my access to voting. Um, those are threats to my right to vote. Similarly, for nature, and so steps are taken, you know, hopefully. <laughs> this is a prime time to be having this conversation in the United States where we see so many threats to the right to vote. But, you know, other states, that, many states are taking measures to expand voting rights, providing, you know, implementing that right to vote by providing more time to vote, by providing mail-in ballot. Those are taking steps to ensure that your right to vote is being upheld. So for nature, what does that mean? Well. If nature has a right to exist, that should mean that government isn't making decisions that interfere with that right. So when a government receives, for instance, a permit from a mining company, that one of the criteria for deciding whether or not to issue the permit to the mining company to mine is, will they be interfering with the right of a river to exist or the right of a wetland to exist? If they're going to be destroying ecosystems or species, therefore denying nature even its right to exist, then the mining shouldn't be able to go continue. And that means putting in decision-making criteria into rules and regulations so that governments are making decisions that uphold nature's rights rather than doing what we do now, which is legally authorize and permit commercial developments that we know are going to fill in and destroy wetlands. So you have to have within the sort of core elements of any rights of nature law, the rights, and then the ability to enforce, defend, and implement those rights. We're talking about the ability to enforce, defend, and implement. Are there any parts of nature that we could not have a right to defend in that way, considering that criteria? Well, if you're recognizing rights as something, you know, in this case, nature, any Rights-based law is go, you know, should have those core elements. Um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to recognize the rights of something and then not be able to actually exercise or defend those rights. So 
So I can't imagine what that is, but if you have a particular instance in mind, um, we could explore it. Yeah, I guess I was just curious if there was something that was maybe that would be too hard to implement. In that case, it would, I don't know, I guess not be easy to pursue is maybe more so my question. I guess everything can have the right to be protected, but I guess more, like, I guess a waterway would be easier than trying to implement, like, I don't know, something to protect, like, an insect or something that's, like, more global in scope. Yeah, I see what you mean. Right. I, I mean, something that is more, you can imagine something that is easier to define, but even a river isn't that easy to define. Maybe that sounds strange, but, you know, so many of the, you know, a river isn't just simply the water flowing, the water flowing. Um, it's the river banks. It's the species that depend upon it. It's the habitat that it provides. It's the water that it filters. There's so many, you know, nature's very complex. Um, and so it's, it goes beyond sometimes, you know, just what we might see with the naked eye to recognize nature as being a very complex, you know, na- ecosystems are very complex. Nature itself, you know, is just constantly in a state of flux. It's a process. Um, and so I think one of the things, maybe this addresses your question somewhat is, you know, one of the things that I think we humans have a really hard time doing is just doing nothing at all. And so often we, you know, you know, you hear within the environmental policy and legal and regulatory arena, you hear about environmental, environmental management plans. And so often, you know, about different ways that human beings are going to manage the environment. And sometimes it's best if we just do nothing, if we just leave nature to itself to recover. And rather than having us taking whatever measures we feel, you know, it's sort of like human beings, you know, are, you know, are like are like the hammer and we see all of nature as a nail that we always have to be hitting it. We always have to be doing something. And I think one of the things that we talk about within like the rights of nature world is maybe sometimes we just don't do anything at all. A lot, you know, human beings have impacted a wetland or an ecosystem or, or whatever it might be. And maybe the best thing to have happen is for nature, humans just to step away and allow nature to naturally recover without human interference. Because sometimes, many times, we, you know, the more we do, the worse it gets. Um, we think we're helping, but we're really hurting. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, just in thinking about our relationship with nature, sometimes the very best thing to do is nothing. We've done enough through our industrial activity. Maybe we just step away and allow nature to recover naturally. That doesn't often happen, um, but I do think it's something that we need to consider more as an alternative for what we actually do when nature is harmed. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. Um, And one question that came to mind is in developing countries, the less industrialized countries, uh, how should we balance the right to develop because sometimes that just part of the necessity versus the rights of nature. Yeah, I, I mean it, it's a question that comes up even in the you know the more developed nations, um, and I think it's you know I ho- I hope although some days I hope my hopes are lower than others um, that we can learn from our mistakes. We have industrialized so much of the world, um, and the consequences are so severe that we would hope that we can learn to live in a more sustainable way. That human activity doesn't have, doesn't have to mean, as it has meant, you know, up until now, it doesn't have to mean the destruction of nature. That we can learn to actually conduct ourselves industrial as well as other activities in a way that doesn't take away from nature but actually can be restorative we haven't had that kind of cultural shift certainly not in the united states and and exploitation is just reflected not only in society in terms of nature but in the law um and so what corporations industries are allowed to do so i think it's not just a problem for less industrialized or less developed nations that do very much depend on natural resource extraction. 
Um, it's a matter of how do we do that in a way that is not destructive, that's not harmful, because we're just going to, they're going to find themselves in the same place we are now. Um, we've done such a great job of outsourcing our exploitation of nature to other parts of the world. And it's just the impacts of that are so severe that we as human beings everywhere have to learn how to live within what nature can handle. Because right now we're so far past it. So it's not easy. There's no good satisfying answer to it. But it really requires us to, within societies, within cultures, to say, we can't live like this anymore. We as a culture are shifting to a different relationship with nature. And that needs to be reflected in our laws and our policies and our actions and our government in our governing toward nature so that we're not our living on this planet does not mean that nature, the natural world is going to not survive. Our survival can't depend on the destruction of the natural world. That has to change. Going off that talk of culture, have you found it that you have to take like a different approach with your work internationally versus domestically in the U.S.? We have worked in a lot of different cultures, a lot of different societies. And it's interesting. I mean, obviously, um, they're, they're different. You know, when we work in Nepal, it's a very different culture than here in the United States. Ecuador, very different culture, very different sort of society. Um, but one of the things, you know, as we, you know, learn about culture and we have partners um, country-based partners, you know, we don't, we don't work in a place that we aren't partnering with people on the ground who help us to understand those different cultures and, and so on. But one of the things that we find is that across cultures, across countries, um, across the globe is that there is, the laws work really similarly, meaning that how nature is treated is very similar. Um, and there's really no wonder about that because you know, the United States in particular has done just a stupendous job of exporting our ideas about governing and laws um, to other countries. But we found that people everywhere are really running into the same problems that people in the United States are running into, which is they find that environmental laws aren't really protective of the environment. And this particular situation they may find themselves in or example of how it is they came to that understanding will be different. But the understanding is the same. And that brings a real commonality to our work, no matter where it is we're working. You know, a certain <laughs> dissatisfaction or unhappiness with what people are able to do to protect the environment. And very often it's not a whole heck of a lot. And the need for change, that's a very shared um, theme across wherever it is we're working, um, a frustration very shared across wherever we're working. And so I think that commonality really reaches across different cultures, which is really unfortunate. You would hope it would be different elsewhere, that they would have a different you know, system that works better. But so often it's just very, very much the same. And so we end up finding ourselves having similar conversations in different places. Yeah. So that's, that I have to say is when I first started working in places other than the United States, I found actually really quite disappointing was that how, how, how common the problems are, how they stretch across everywhere. Yeah. So going off of that, I, I know that there's some obvious contradictions between some of the, I guess, capitalist ideas rooted in modern economic theories versus you know, things like rights to nature. So how do we, can we truly protect the rights of the environment in a capitalist society? And how, how does that, how does that look like in terms of, you know, convincing people in power lawmakers that this is going to have a benefit in their terms, right? So you previously distinguished the human benefits and the inherent rights of the environment. Sometimes maybe we focus too much on just a human aspect and we kind of quantify that in, into um, economic terms. So I just want to get your take on and those contradictions. Yeah, there, there's, <laughs> there's a lot. 
you know, one of the things that we do a lot is think about and learn about other movements. So other movements that have come up against the, sort of the very same things that you're describing, um, that the rights of nature movement is coming up against. That is to say, you know, when you look at the abolitionist movement in the United States and elsewhere, and to end slavery, those movements to end slavery came up against very similar forces that we face today. That is, an eco- economies that were based on slavery, cultures that were just saturated in slavery as a norm, as a good, societies that depended on slavery. And, and so the abolitionist movement came up against, you know, those economic and legal, of course, I should mention, the legal norms that legalized slavery. They came up against all those forces and had to challenge all those forces in order to end slavery and to recognize rights of people that were formerly enslaved. Um, and so, and to say, you know, the women's rights movement similarly came up against all of those kinds of barriers. Civil rights movement, other movements have come up against all those forces that we come up against today when we seek to protect the rights of the natural world. And just like then, um, we draw lessons from those other movements. And really, you know, when we're talking about the best lessons, of course, are that the kinds of legal shift that we need, the kinds of you know, governing changes that we need to make, all of those movements, because they were successful because they made really significant shifts within cultures. That is, like with the abolitionists, they spoke to and brought together people, um, you know, in the United States, really all over the country, largely in the North, of course, but not, not just in the North, um, to get people to understand just how brutal slavery was, um, to sort of lift the veil on the enslavement of other human beings. And it required a real cultural shift in order for people to understand that slavery needed to end. Um, and so that cultural shift helped to drive a legal shift. And similarly with women, why it was important that women should have rights recognized. At the same time as that cultural shift is occurring in any movement, you have forces working against it, just like we do today. Um, you know, within the sort of mainstream environmental movement, within the rights of nature movement, there's always industry and corporations and governments that are fighting any effort to protect nature or protect the environment in a stronger way than we currently are. You know, they claim it's a good to exploit nature, you know, so that we can, you know, have our, our cars and our phones and all of these things. And it re- will require, does require a really deep cultural shift for us to understand us being just people in general us to understand that what we're doing to the natural world is just so bad i don't even have the words for it at the moment i mean what we're doing is just so bad so severe tearing holes you know in the very fabric of life and that is unto itself i consider it immoral um, some people consider that to be blasphemous from a spiritual perspective. And still others will understand that that will have severe consequences on their own lives. And it may already have that. Um, and so people will come to it just like they have in other movements for different reasons, morality, spirituality, you know, just a sense of right and wrong, um, and a sense that their own self-interest is being harmed. Those are the things that drive change really deep fundamental change, not just in culture, but in law, um, legal systems, policy. And that's what I think we need um, today around the environment. Those are the kinds of ways that we make those in power, you know, like you described, like corporations, industry, and even government. They have to essentially be pushed and forced to change because the culture has moved in a direction that requires them um, to respond to. And I really do think that's how that change will occur. That really fundamental shift will occur. That's what other movements have had to do to make change. And I think that's what we have to do today 
to make the kind of change that's necessary for us to move from a very destructive relationship with nature to one in which we recognize ourselves as part of nature, as dependent on nature. Yeah, it reminds me a lot. I'm currently in an IR class and we're learning about a uh, critical green theory as a potential way of looking at the world. And I feel like our discussion today kind of aligns with that, shifting from kind of this human-centered view to kind of an eco-centered view on our environment and our relationship with it. To kind of like wrap us up for today, I am kind of curious like where you see the future of this going. Because I saw that you guys are doing some work with declaring like a declaration of rights for the moon and looking kind of almost out of Earth and to, you know, people talking about innovating our way out of this or maybe going and colonizing other whole planets <laughs> potentially to keep up with our rapid growth. Like, where does the environmental rights movement go on from here? Well, we like to say off Earth going off Earth beyond our planetary boundaries. We worked with partners to develop a Declaration of the Rights of the Moon, and we released that last year. And it came in part because, as we may know, that there's a lot of plans for the moon right now. Um, some talk about it as being literally a launch pad for travel to Mars, but still there's also just sort of the more basic plans to extract, mine the moon for different different minerals and other things. All of this, whether on the moon or Mars, you know, human beings bring significant impact when we do that. And the moon in particular, we depend upon the moon. You know, just like we depend upon nature here on Earth, off Earth, we depend upon the moon for a great deal particularly, of course, tidal forces, keeping us in our present orbit, all of these things. And we don't know what the consequences will be of you know, sticking giant, you know, dynamiting inside the moon to extract. We don't know what it will mean to do all of these human activities that many are hoping that we can do um, and exploiting the moon or potentially other planets. What we do know, we don't know what will happen with that. We can only imagine that the consequences will be very impactful and negative because that is what we do here on Earth. Um, and I think there's a tendency to treat the moon as sort of like a dead object or other planets as dead. A, we don't know that. B, we depend upon the moon for our life. Um, and so interfering with the moon and its life could be really quite dreadful for us. And other planets, we don't know if life is there or not. I mean, that's part of what space exploration is about. So this idea of recognizing rights of the moon comes in response, in part, because we know that there are real threats to the moon um, that companies and governments are hoping to carry out um, in the not-too-distant future. And we felt it very important for us to go wait we already know what we've done to our own planet. Let us not interfere with the ecosystems on the lunar surface or Mars or elsewhere. Let's get our house in order. And let's not export our bad to other places um, because we don't know what the consequences will be. What we do know is that we have a really bad history of destroying new places, new frontiers here on Earth. Let's not export that offer. Um, and it's one of those things about, let's think about what our relationship with the moon needs to be. What is our moon, you know, with other off-Earth places? What does that need to be? What is it, what's healthy? What's ecologically sustainable? Because we have a really bad reputation for what we do here on Earth. And so we felt that really important for us before this kind of stuff starts happening on the moon to start having a dialogue about what that how does that actually work in a way that's sustainable, that doesn't interfere with what the moon is right now? And is it even possible to do that in a way um, that is does not harm uh, the environment of the moon or the lunar surface? And I'm not at all convinced that's possible. So that's that's what we've started the dialogue on because we think it's really necessary before the harm occurs to start talking about how do we prevent it from ever happening in the first place.
Yeah, I mean, I think that's awesome that you guys are getting a head start on that. I didn't even think about the issues of tides and all of that that can come about if we mess up the moon too early. So thank you for that. Um, I guess to just kind of wrap us up today, if you have any resources or ways to learn more about your work and all of that, we'd love to share anything with our audience. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. I would, there's a couple of resources that we maintain on our website, Center for Environmental Rights.org. Um, for instance, we have a law library, Rights of Nature Law Library, where you can find Rights of Nature Laws, Rights of Nature Court Decisions. We have a timeline, um, of the Rights of Nature movement beginning back in 2006 with the first Rights of Nature Law. Um, so people can sort of see how the movement has grown globally. We also have a free, it's, you know, it's called a legal training, but it's anyone can take it. it doesn't, you don't have to be a law student or a lawyer to go a bit deeper um, than we have gone today about rights of nature laws and how they're implemented and enforced and where that's happened. That can be found on our website as well, and anyone is free to take it. So we have a lot. And we like to bring voices from different places where we work and where we know people are doing good work um, from different places around the globe, people who are members of tribal nations that are doing this work. So we have a number of different webinars that people are free to check out, take a look at on demand to hear about different people in different places, what they're doing, why they're doing it, how they're doing it. And then lastly, the thing I'll say is, you know, we work um, with new people, new groups, new communities, new places all the time. Um, and people should not hesitate to reach out um, to us. We're very happy to engage in conversation to explore what people are interested in doing and seeing, you know, how we might be of help. So, you know, I I welcome um, people getting in touch with us as well. All right, amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. And yeah, thanks to you both. That'll wrap up our episode for today. For more information on EcoAlarm and resources on topics covered in this episode, follow us at EcoAlarm Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thank you guys so much for listening. Tune in every other Friday, and we'll see you next time. Bye.